0: Well, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Continuing our study in God's Word. And what I have found is God's Word continues to speak to us in view of even current circumstances and events that continue to happen in our society around us. God's Word is relevant because it is God's Word. We don't have to make it relevant, it just speaks for itself and we're thankful here that we trust the truth as it just unfolds in front of us. Interestingly, the idea of protest comes to mind when I read our section of scripture uh, this week and studying it, there's a lot of protest these days. Protesting is trending, it might not be as hot this week, as might have been last week or the week before, but it is part of the ongoing conversation of what to protest next. It begs the question for believers is it ever right for Christians to protest? Does the Bible warrant protests? The Bible certainly says that we are to submit to governing authorities and to Be humble therein, and we've tried to show that this month with the emergency order. But is it ever time to protest? And the book of Acts is our only infallible true record of the early church. Without the book of Acts, we really wouldn't have any idea what was going on from the beginning at all. And in the book of Acts, there are a lot of occasions where Christians are taken to court, Where Christians are tried by governing authorities, where Christians are put in jail, where Christians are beaten, where Christians are executed. This is in and through the 28 chapters of the book of Acts. Why? Because Christians would stand for truth. Their stance for truth, the early church preaching the gospel, flew in the face of the governing authorities might have been legal to preach until it wasn't legal to preach but when you keep preaching it becomes a protest and then there is penalty for protest and protesting John the Baptist he confronted Herod Antipas who had married his uh, incestuously married his uh, sister-in-law and by doing so John the Baptist was confronting the, the king of the area and lost his head for it. Christ exposed the Pharisees, he exposed their sin, he exposed their legalism, and by doing so, Christ was executed. Jesus protested the religious authorities and was killed for it. 500 years ago, there was the Protestant Reformation. Luther was a chief figurehead for that, Calvin to follow. All they did was preach the clear gospel, preach the word of God, clarify the truth that we are saved by grace through faith alone, not by works. In doing so, it kicked up a lot of dust. It created persecution. It was a protest, and the church for 500 years has been called the Protestant Church. We've been protesting for 500 years, standing for the truth of the grace of the gospel. Our church is called Anchorage Grace Church for a reason. We're standing for the one way to heaven. There's no other way to heaven but by grace alone. It's by what God does for you alone. And we stand for the clarity of that. And We're protesting any church that defies that truth. The question isn't whether we as a church could biblically conduct a peaceful protest. The question is whether it's right timing to do it or not, when to do it, why do it. We're always called to fight the good fight of faith. We're always called to, Jude 1, 3, contend earnestly for the faith, the truth of the gospel. When the truth of the gospel is in jeopardy, when biblical principle is being Challenged, it causes the church to ask when it is time to take a stand. If you look at the underground church, the persecuted church, even in particular in China, who, because of communism making it illegal to meet openly, they've always gone underground, at least in my lifetime, that's all I've known of. That's a protest. That's a protest. Well, Matthew 3 actually records a massive protest for us. Interestingly, if you just look at the text before us where we were last time, Matthew 3, you have John the Baptist who's baptizing and he's in a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt and his secured around his waist and he's eating locust and wild honey eating off the land as a prophet would he's the final prophet of the old covenant and it says in verse five then jerusalem we're talking about the whole city jerusalem and all judea the surrounding region all the region about the jordan we're going out to him the prophet he's out of town He's over by the Dead Sea, the southern tip. He's in the wilderness, the desert region, preaching. everybody awakens to that word and says, we're gonna leave Jerusalem. We're gonna leave dead religion for something that's real. We're gonna leave the lifeless for life. We're gonna leave formalism, externalism, Something that causes me to feel vacuous and empty, to come out to the truth, to come out in mass by the thousands, to protest false religion, deadening religion, death-filled religion, to, fought, to protest the authority figures of the Sanhedrin who were dominant in their politics and in their political positions. Religion and politics were merged in this theocracy that had been corrupted through the intertestamental period. By the time the 400 years of darkness between the last book of the Bible and the Old Testament, Malachi, to Matthew, the dawning of Christ, this 400 years had, had created all kinds of confusion and corruption within Israelite leadership False leadership, false teaching, merit-based religion that was corrupt and soul-deadening needed a protest, and John the Baptist is awakened, and he's enlivened, and given this platform in the wilderness for people to outpour to, and they did. The Sanhedrin was Israel's supreme court. They were made up of 71 members. It was a religion-based body ultimately ruled by the high priest who presided over it. They met every single day except on the Sabbath to hold court and adjudicate what they thought was right or wrong. It's made of Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, scribes, dignitaries, and different classes and different parties made up this group of the 71, the Sanhedrin. Two of the main factions were the Pharisees, And the Sadducees, and we're going to talk about them quite a bit this morning because I want to give you a basis for who they were back then because they permeate the book of Matthew. To understand the adversary of Christ is to understand what Christ was against and what Christ was standing for in opposition to them. Christ protested the Pharisees and the Sadducees he was protesting robed religion, external law-keeping and it was exposing what was false for what was true and real and what reached the heart. John's message was one of repentance, saying come out and repent, repent of what? Repent of them, repent of that, repent of there. Come out here, leave there. No truth be Changed from the heart. That's what John's message was. And the baptism of repentance was to be immersed in the symbolism of that message. I'm coming out of that, I'm going down into the water, and I'm Given new life with a new heart that's been changed and cleansed and transformed. Ezekiel chapter six, God has taken out the heart of stone and he's replaced it with a new heart of flesh. And within that Ezekiel 36 imagery, there's the washing away of idols back then that represents the washed heart from the idolatry of false religion. Be baptized. This is a sign of your repentance. This is what John was preaching. All were going out. And interestingly, not just those who were repenting, everyone was going out. Even the Pharisees and the Sadducees were going out to see what was going on and even to perhaps participate in this baptism. Maybe this is an elective to my religion. I've got everything figured out here. But maybe there's something more out there that I need to add as an elective in addition to what I already believe and know of. Maybe he is a true prophet, but if so, then he's just part of what we already believe. John's message is striking and clear regarding the Pharisees and regarding why they were coming out. Specifically what they weren't coming out for. Look at verse 7. It says, but when he, this is John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. It's a striking contrast between true repenters and false repenters. He's speaking rhetorically, saying, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? You're like vipers in the desert. When there was a desert fire out there, all the animal life would run from the smoke, would run from the the fire, and the vipers would be fleeing the fire wrath. And he's saying, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? This fiery judgment that's to come. Did God warn you? Is that why you're coming? I don't know that John could see their hearts. He certainly recognized the Pharisees and Sadducees by their outward garb and robes and hats, their phylacteries, their religious look as they walked amongst the crowd. They were a crowd in and of themselves and they were walking and moving amongst the crowd. He didn't know their hearts internally, but he knew what they stood for externally. And he knew that the larger mass was fleeing them. And then he was seeing this group merge in with them. It's the many, verse seven. He saw many. What did he see? He saw many Pharisees and Sadducees. The polis is the word many there, where we get um, the word for city. There was a small contingency of uh, like a city-like grouping coming from the city. Josephus, the early church historian, said there were 6,000 Pharisees during the times of Christ. Maybe all 6,000 of them were coming out. We don't know. Sometimes we get word pictures or I, you know, pictures in our minds of what it would have been like, but it says a whole lot came out. And if you cross-reference Luke's account of John's confrontation, he, he was confronting the crowds. It's not even um, dissecting the Pharisees and Sadducees when he spoke against the vipers. In other words, it was a whole lot of people that were coming out that he was confronting and specified here as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Maybe 6,000 Pharisees. Hey, if that perfectionistic Pharisee is doing it, and that Pharisee believes he has it all together, then I need to go too. I don't want to be left out. We're all going to John the Baptist. This must be the right thing for us to do. Sadducees were known to be fewer in number, but still quite a crowd. Maybe they were coming out to spy on the quaking protest. Would have been a raucous scene. People lined up to be baptized. John the Baptist preaching. Maybe they were coming as emissaries. John 119, who is a parallel section to this, says that it's the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Maybe that's what they were doing, but probably they wanted to participate. I think they wanted to do it as a political stunt Luke 7:30 says that they were not baptized but i think they wanted to be i think they wanted to just merge in fit in the old adage of know your friends know your enemies more keep your friends close keep your enemies closer comes to mind they wanted to fit in maybe they were acting ost- ostentatiously bragging about their holiness But the bottom line is they didn't get baptized. Why? Because John exposed them for what they really were. He exposed them. He ripped back the veneer and said, we're not friends. Your ecumenism is not going to work. You're a brood of vipers. You come from a family of snakes. You're poison. That's what he said. You're poisonous. You're a killer. And I'm going to expose you. That's what he did. He didn't see them coming to repent to be right with God. He saw them trying to cause problems, not coming to repent, coming to corrupt, coming to poison the crowds. Crowds were repentant, but not this group. And I think it's important for us to understand that this text is showing us a picture of the Pharisees and the Sadducees for a reason. There's wrath coming, When it comes, don't be them. That's the point. If you want to just write that down, that's the point of the message. There's judgment coming. It hasn't come yet, even in the 21st century. Judgment day is coming. There are people who are like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Don't be them. Because if you're like them, if that's your state of heart, then the judgment is for you. This is a lesson on how not to be like the Pharisees and Sadducees or what they needed to repent of. It's another way to put it. You can repent of these things. Don't be them. Repent if you are like them. So how do you repent? Let me give you a path of repentance, what you need to repent of. Number one, repent of what they needed to repent of, which was they were being poisonous. What was their poison? Again, I want to talk For a little while, about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Their poison is the poison of today. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything that we learn about the Pharisees, everything we learn about the Sadducees, is playing out again in spades, overtly, obviously, even today. And you don't want to be part of this poison. You don't want to drink this poison, and you don't want to exert this kind of poison on anybody else. What is the poison? What is so lethal? Well, first you have the Pharisees and Sadducees, interestingly, grouped together with the definite article. They're put together. And biblically, Jesus puts them together. He calls out the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He puts them together. But politically and ideologically, or in terms of how they think, the Pharisees could not be any more diametrically opposed to each other. Yeah, they're both... Sections and they're both factions inside the Sanhedrin, but they sat on the opposite ends of the house, opposite sides of the house. They represented two different parties within the religious leadership. So for them to be grouped together is interesting. It's odd. It's an odd coalition. It would take only an attack on Christ to cause people to coalesce who disagreed at the levels that they did. An assault on Christ, an assault on the forerunner of Christ. They hadn't even met Christ yet, but they were attacking Christ even though they didn't quite know that or not yet yet. They they were attacking a protest. They were attacking gospel truth and they didn't even really understand all of why they were attacking. They didn't understand why they were coalescing. They didn't understand why they were banding together. Does any of this get your attention? This is what the human heart does when it wants to assault Christ. Hey, we'll lay down our individual preferences and we'll align together to attack the gospel, to attack the truth and and attack Christ. The Pharisees were law keepers. The Sadducees were liberals. The Pharisees were fastidious law keepers. And the Sadducees were liberals. Now you need to stretch a little bit in terms of the religious political elision that's taking place here. Religious leaders in this economy were also political leaders. You have Rome that is kind of overseeing all of this madness. But within their adjudication of their law and their government, they were enforcing old covenant law to their own ends, for their own means, for their own power, for their own pleasure and purposes. That's what the Sanhedrin was. The Sanhedrin was not a godly group of people. They were not almost saved, almost in God, almost following God. They were anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-truth, even though they leveraged law and truth for their own ends and their own means. Ultimately, the Sanhedrin delivered over Christ to be killed. They were anti-Christ. The Pharisees and Sadducees were two unique parties within, and the Pharisees were the law keepers using all of the Old Testament to their ends and they would add in traditions and they would keep these traditions on equal weight and equal measure with the Old Testament law and they would enforce these things as an unkeepable, immeasurable standard to keep people under their religious thumb. That's what was going on here. That's who the Pharisees are. The Sadducees are... By contrast, the philosophical gurus of the day, they reach and reached and represented the aristocratic Israelite upper class. They were the thinkers they were the thinkers. They were anti-supernatural. Does that sound familiar? I mean, they, they named God, but they were anti-supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in a real tactile heaven one day where a real tactile, hands-on God would hold you accountable one day. They believed in a new age heaven and a new age ethereal sort of afterlife that it's just out there and doesn't really have anything to do with us here and now. They were known to only hold to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. So all of the prophecies of Christ and all those different um, images and pictures of Christ are just ripped away from their Old Testament Bibles. What they held to was the Torah. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's what they believed, and then they imported all of their intellectualism and all of their philosophies to make out their religion. So you have the Pharisees who are reaching the middle class. They're reaching the, the people um, as, as lay leaders amongst the laity. And they're reaching them with laws and they, they have their they have the herd that's following them with law keeping. We're almost with Pharisaical cult-like leadership. Think of a cult leader who's saying, look, I am your gateway to whether or not you are right with God or not according to whether or not you're keeping our laws. That's what the Pharisees were doing. And the Sadducees were sitting more in the chair of the elite as the university professor, the intellectual, the, the thinkers of the age that, that used the Bible but ultimately said, you need to bow to the God of yourself. This is secular humanism. There's nothing new under the sun. There's legalism. There's throat-clutching legalism that, that keeps people under their thumb. And then there's this ideological, ali-ali-oxen-free deal where just, just be who you are, you know, and, and live for yourself and do whatever you want to do. This sort of anti-supernatural malaise is put onto people. The Pharisees, we don't really know. Let's talk about them for just a second more. We don't know exactly where they originated from. We, typically, cults, they just come out of nowhere. They were part of uh, perhaps the, the Has- Hasidean people um, pre-Christ, 40 years before there were the Maccabean Wars. And there are these Jewish sects, either the Essenes or the Hasideans that created the Pharisees, Hasidim means pious. Pharisee means separated ones from the Hebrew derivation there. It's separated ones. It's people who believe themselves to be extraordinarily pious and, and self-qualified. They were the legalists. They were the ritualists. And they promoted a false teaching and a false gospel that was merit-based if you kept the law good enough, then you are in. If you don't, you're out. The gatekeeper of someone's acceptance is always being satanic, blinding people, and binding their conscience. Many modern um, protests today are cult-like you see people binding people's consciences with guilt and fear that you're guilty if you don't participate. You're, you're guilty if you don't submit to some kind of imposed standard. This is Phariseeism. This is manipulation within our 21st century. People the Pharisees tried to manipulate Christ, and you'll remember this. They tried to get Christ in trouble with the government. Matthew twenty two, we'll obviously preach this later. Matthew twenty two, fifteen, it says, Then the Pharisees plotted how to entangle him in his words. They wanted to mix him up and mess him up. What they wanted to do was trap Jesus into some kind of supposed tax evasion to get him in trouble with Caesar. It's a setup. We're going to manipulate you with some external self-imposed pressure, some, some new law, some new idea, and we'll get Jesus to trip up in his word so he'll get, in tra- he'll get in trouble with Caesar and the government. It's Matthew twenty-two sixteen to 22. It says, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. It's all to flatter Jesus. For we know you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him in a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, "Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's." In other words, don't try to pit righteous submission to true giving and worship to God. They shouldn't be pit against each other. When they heard it, they marvelled. Who marvelled? Well, the ones that were trying to trap him. They marvelled and they left him and went away. They were not impressed with Jesus. They were surprised that he was able to see through their plot and scheme. And he very deftly avoided it, got out from that snare. The middle class would have kind of risen to Jesus' support, along with the Pharisees saying, yeah, let's not pay Caesar. Let's go against, we don't like being taxed. But Jesus didn't take the bait. The Sadducees were the religious philosophers. They were the secular humanists, the elitists, the Ivy League, agnostics. They were guru. They were pro-intellect and they were anti-intellectual. We don't know any people like that, do we? I mean, there is nothing new. The Sadducees, the other party, they were the liberals. They did not believe in the resurrection. So what was their poison? They, They wanted power through elitism they were kind of like uh, a religious version of of the mafia with the temple worship. Uh, they controlled all the temple tax. They had an in on that during the um, feast of Passover when all the pilgrims would come in, the great pilgrimage would come in and people would be looking for a lamb to offer. I need a lamb. They would control all of that and that, that's how they did the money changing. Money changing was not like whether or not you should have a bookstore at church. That's not what we're talking about. This was a casino-like run temple that Jesus blew up. Okay, Jesus blew up a casino in the house of God because they were racketeering these sheep and lamb and doves and things to make money. That's what the Sadducees were all about, to keep power through their, quote-unquote, clean animal deal. They were liberals. The Sadducees would never try to get Jesus with tax evasion like the Pharisees did because they were already illegal in their own right. They wanted to get Jesus to look anti-intellectual. They wanted Jesus to look like a religious fanatic. Imagine that. They were trying to expose him as someone who's illogical or stupid. Further in Matthew 22, here's the Sadducees' attempt. It's right in the line of the Pharisees tried to get him and then the Sadducees pick it up, verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him who who say there is no resurrection and they asked him a question, saying, "'Teacher,' Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third down to the seventh. And after them all, the woman died in the resurrection, which by the way, they don't believe in, in the resurrection you religious fanatic, you believe that people are going to be in the afterlife and physically know each other. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you were wrong. Because, I love this, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. This is why liberals can't understand us. Why they are naturally minded, they can't relate to what we understand in terms of heaven and hell and truth and error. You don't know the scripture. You don't know God's power. Verse 34, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read... What was said to you by God, and I love this, for I am the God of Abraham. Physically recognizable Abraham. He died, but you're the God of Abraham. And the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. When people die, they're still there. They're still identifiable. They're still people. We just don't get to be married to each other up there because we're all super satisfied in Christ. It's the ultimate picture of cornelia. It's the ultimate end of pandemic-like situation. Heaven, right? When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Sadducees were narcissists, self-worshippers, anti-supernatural. I choked on watching some of the DNC Democratic National Convention. Don't throw me out for that. I did it with a filter. No, I you know I watched it for a little while and. Halfway through, actually, this was watching it post-tense. I just watched the little video, John Biden's acceptance speech, where he commits to his first step in office, quote, to get the virus under control. He's going to do that by himself, single-handedly. I don't know. That's what he said. I'm going to take care of this. Then Biden proceeds to accuse Trump, President Trump, as having failed in his approach to the coronavirus. He's been a big failure. And I understand Biden is throwing mud and doing his political gamesmanship. I I get it. Biden cites Trump, though, as saying the virus will suddenly disappear. That's what Trump's been saying. It's just going to disappear. And that Trump is waiting for a miracle. Do you remember this? If you saw this, he's waiting for a miracle. Well, again, I know Biden was not overtly talking in terms of God and religion at this point, but he was Entering into biblical theology, whether he knew it or not, he said, Trump's waiting for a miracle. He's trying to accuse Trump of being passive, obviously, he's throwing mud. But then Biden looks at the screen and his countenance changes and he gets very angry and he says, I have news for Trump about coronavirus. No miracle is coming. Now again, again, I know he was not overtly making a statement about God or God's existence, but in a lot of ways, the Sadducees weren't either. They weren't openly denying God in their liberalism, but they were denying God. They were denying the truth. They didn't know the power of God. And it's going to be very interesting to see liberalism try to erase God from our culture. If I don't say it, who will? The pulpits need to speak. We speak for God. We speak for scripture. We speak for truth. We speak for the Holy Spirit's power that comes in our hearts. And guess what? El- illuminates us, enlivens us to know that he's real. He's true. He's here. He's powerful. He's alive. God is conspicuously absent from the liberal's agenda. Verse seven, again, again, John says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who warned you? Who warned you to this? The obvious answer is God didn't warn you. God didn't warn you. You're not of God. Instead, you are a hypocrite. And that goes into verse eight. This is the second thing the Pharisees and Sadducees needed to repent of. They needed to repent of their poison, their false doctrine, their false teaching, As vipers. And secondly, they needed to repent of their hypocrisy. Verse 8 Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. As stinging as this rebuke is, in its simplicity, recognize that this is grace. The call to repent is grace. If you are alive spiritually, you'll bear fruit. If you are dead spiritually, even if you think you are alive, even if you think you are safe, you are still dead fruit tells whether or not something is alive or something is dead. We grow a lot of things around our property. And when there are apples on the apple tree, you know that that thing is alive and doing pretty well. If there were no apples, it would be dead. Even if it looks alive, it's dead or it's dying. It's on its way to being all the way dead. Fruit tells whether something is alive. If somebody is spiritually alive, they're going to manifest the fruit of the spirit. They're gonna have some level of love, some level of life, some level of worship, something, some small level of fruit where they see their sin and they talk about it and repent of it and turn to Christ. Repentance is a message of life. It's not a message of death. It's turning. It was the testimony of 1 Thessalonians 1.9, the Thessalonians who received the apostles and their teaching. And he, Paul said, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It's truth, Acts three nineteen. repent and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that, they, that your sins can be erased. How do you deal with the, the issue, beneath the issue, beneath the issue, beneath the issue within our culture and within your life? How do you deal with it? Repentance. The antidote to what's wrong is being made right by repentance in Jesus Christ. You believe in him. You exercise faith and you repent. It's two sides of the same coin, faith and repentance. This is what deals with sin. It's what gives you Christ and his cross to cover it all, to blot it all away. John 15 is that great picture of a vine and branches. You have Branches that bear fruit that remain. And then you have dead branches, which one preacher called the Judas Iscariot branch. The Judas branch. He looks like he's alive. He's around the power of God. He's around the teaching of Christ. He's hanging in and then he's not bearing fruit. He's bearing the fruit, not of the spirit, but the fruit of the flesh. That's the branch that's torn off, tossed away and burned in fire. You know, it really takes nothing at all To stand for issues surrounding social justice. You do not have to be alive spiritually to protest for social justice. You don't. And a lot of evangelical Christianity, I think, is inspired by social justice because it lets you off the hook from having to truly be alive spiritually. It sounds radical, but I was watching a video from Um, It was probably five, six years ago, the Gospel Coalition, three names of three individuals who were nationally and internationally known evangelical movers and shakers and authors and preachers, two of whom are outright apostate from my perspective. I'm not going to name them. One is on Twitter, spouting obscenities, aligning himself with gay pride parades. He's left his wife, left his ministry, he was an evangelical hero, rock star for a long time. Another one is now espousing the little God theology that God in him makes him deity-like and he's tampering with a false gospel. And then the third one was disqualified from his ministry and his broad national mission that a lot, a lot of people benefited from and now he's back in a local church. I'm thankful for that, I guess, I guess. it's easy to stand for things on a superficial level that's why so many people jump into that boat but the fruit of the spirit comes from the life that's inside of you only by the holy spirit the holy spirit should not be confused by activism or with activism well finally look at verse verses nine and ten 9 and 10, under what they need to repent of, their repentance was being blocked in their own minds by their sense of privilege. And it sounds like I'm meddling here, but it's racial privilege. Look at verse 9. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. In John 8, the Pharisees would confront Christ and they would say, You're not the light of the world. You're not the living water. You're not it. Where's your witnesses that you're in? And Jesus said, I'm my witness and my father's my witness. And where I'm going, you can't follow. And they said, where are you going? And he was alluding to the cross, which was the only way they could be saved. And the Pharisees got more and more angry. And Jesus said, look, the truth will make you free. And they were offended by that. Why? Because they said, why would we need to be free from anything? And Jesus said... You are, they would say, why wouldn't we need to be free from anything because we are of our father Abraham? That's what they were relying on. Their race, their ethnicity was their safety net and Jesus confronted them and said, you are not of your father Abraham, you are of the father of lies who is the devil. You're a liar, you're a hypocrite. Jesus exposed the Pharisees in the same way that John the Baptist, his forerunner, was doing And ultimately, Jesus said, look, before Abraham was, I am. I am. He's saying, I'm God. I was before Abraham. I am the God over Abraham. So they picked up stones to try to kill Jesus. He didn't let them. But this is the battle that wages, where you have people who blind themselves with privilege. They're blinded and John says, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Your connection in terms of your ethnicity means nothing in light of this conversation. Jesus is, or John the Baptist is saying, you need to repent of sin. You need to deal with sin, not try to mask this with your ethnicity, your heritage in or your lineage in Abraham. That means nothing. God could raise these stones right over here up and make children of Abraham. It means nothing. Don't be blinded by your sense of privilege. Now that sounds really harsh, but guess what? John the Baptist was preaching grace to the Pharisees. Grace to them. say, that doesn't sound very gracious. He was trying to unlock them from an eternity in hell. Don't be Judas Iscariot. Don't be a dead branch. Don't be consumed in the eternal flames of the wrath of God. See that you can't trust where you come from as your position in God. You're not safe. Secondly, not only do they need to flee this sense of privilege in their repentance, verse 10 they also need to flee being oblivious to the wrath of God. Oblivious. And I'll stop here, but verse 10 even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Every tree, chopped down, thrown away into the eternal judgment of God. The axe, literally, I remember reading this as a college, a Bible student in college, just picturing in my mind an axe that was laid right at the front of these trees. They're, they're, the, 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 the woodsman is going to cut these trees down. I'm laying my tool down. It's prepared. I'm ready to go there and start chopping away. This is what God is poised to do. Don't be oblivious to this moment. Pharisees who are coming in contact with a prophet, Judas Iscariot who's coming in direct contact with Christ, you who's hearing the Word of God directly in the 21st century through progressed full canonized revelation, you're hearing by the Spirit of God the call to repent. Repent of legalism, repent of liberalism, repent of of believing that you were privileged, repent of, of being oblivious to the wrath of God, open your eyes. Let me ask you this. Would any Pharisee ever repent? Would anybody ever care? Would anybody that's locked up that deeply in religion ever repent? The Bible says that they can and did. Most didn't, but a couple did. I know of one, Nicodemus repented, right? Remember John 3? He was called the teacher of the law. He was he was basically the religious pope of the region. He was the most respected religious leader there was. And Jesus said, you must be born again. You gotta be washed. And Nicodemus is going, how can I enter a womb a second time? How can can I do that? What are you talking about? Nicodemus was completely confused because he wasn't thinking spiritually at that point. He needed to be regenerated and renewed. And ultimately, John 19 says that he was He was with Joseph of of Arimathea asking Pilate to take the body of Jesus away, getting permission. Nicodemus did that with Joseph. He was the one who had come to Jesus by night, verse 39, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. They took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. They loved the Lord Jesus. Nicodemus had become born again. We hear from him in the, the book of Acts and his heart changed ultimately. This is the testimony. Was there another Pharisee that believed? Remember Saul who became Paul? That, that's the Pharisee of the Pharisees. The top student, the Apostle Paul, the persecutor of the church. He was enraged against the families of God, believing that what he was doing by allowing Stephen to be killed, casting a lot, his lot against him, he was considered a member of the Sanhedrin. Acts 23 speaks of that. He was a Pharisee in the sect. Of the, of the Pharisees within the Sanhedrin, politically empowered, fastidious with the law, and then he counted it all as rubbish, all as dung, all as scubalon. It's gross to him, it's abhorrent to him. He turns to Christ in faith alone, believes on him and is saved and becomes a true Christian leader used within gospel work. Next week, we'll pick this up with point two, why do they need to repent? We're gonna talk about a baptism of Holy Spirit and fire next week. So hopefully you'll tune in for one last live stream before we all come back the week after next. But we're plotting in scripture and hopefully this is relevant to you. I know scripture is always relevant. It's always true and it's always truth. And I hope our minds have been washed with the word together